0: You might think about the Irish passport when you listen to Janet Harbison. What do
1: you have to do? I'm going to warm up my hands. I'm just going to um, put the cup of tea around the, of the hands.
0: The passport, as you know, has a harp on it. As someone said, the only country in the world with a musical instrument as its emblem. And you look at this emblem and you think of the sadness and struggle and joy and hope that preceded its arrival. And in a way, when you listen to her, it's been a bit like that for Janet.
1: Uh, That's This was the toilet block of the original school.
0: She runs a harp school in Castle Connell, County Limerick.
1: The washroom has been turned into a classroom. The loo is still the loo. So out the main door.
0: The journey to the harp school has been joyful, but also filled with fear and danger, kidnapping, an arson attack and some despair.
1: I want to see this country vibrant with harps.
0: Janet begins the story of herself and the harp with the Marx Brothers.
1: My dad had seen the film of Harpo Marx doing his thing with this tumble-down piano, playing it like a harp, and Dad thought this was very romantic. Found that there were harp lessons going in my local secondary school and signed me up. Myself and my brother were packed off to Irish college and, of course, I was playing the piano for the Cayley band and playing the whistle and singing all these most phenomenally wonderful songs and I just absorbed, I sucked it up, every bit of it and came back to secondary school then in Dublin and it was a different kind of Irishness there. That was more of your cabaret, Jury's cabaret Irishness and that's what we were trained for, actually, in the harp room. That's all part of the background. I was a, a jobbing harpy. know, I didn't actually play in Bonrati, but I was one of the castle girls. I was very anxious to try and move out of the cabaret and into the concert environment because I'm a trained classical musician as well. But anyway, I'm also a bit of a rock chick. And I wanted to be the centre of attention. I wanted an audience. I wanted to perform and not just doing the drawing room corner or the castle gate things, you know. So anyway, I was having to do the gainful employment as well. So I was an academic and I was a, a fellow in the Institute of Irish Studies up in Queen's University, And while I was there, I discovered that the harp was also a very useful educational tool in Northern Ireland because it was, people couldn't figure out whether you were Catholic or Protestant. And it was one of those nice nebulous things. It was very strongly Irish, but the emblem of the ouc it's the emblem of British authority in Northern Ireland. Nobody could figure out whether you were a tag or a prod, and also with a name like Harbison, but talking with an Irish accent, I was in an extraordinarily special place where I could actually move quite easily between the communities. And so I was offered a job out in the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum to essentially work with the cultural traditions, the various cultural traditions, and look for an accommodation of understanding between the communities. So I did that work for eight years. We celebrated a bicentenary of the Belfast Harpers Assembly, which is a very important historical event where a lot of the harp music was written down and those were the manuscripts that I was working on for my research. But what I want to do is to use that as an opportunity to create a cultural event that embraced both traditions in Northern Ireland. So I created this idea of the World Harp Festival. And really, what I wanted to do was to explore the harp, exploit the history to show that this is an instrument that is more than merely a tourism venue instrument. But I was very keen to keep the business in that side of things too. So I created a concert group of 20 plus harps and we essentially toured. And within our first year, we got taken on board by the Chieftains. And that led to the Celtic Harp CD, which won the Grammy Award for Top Folk Music Album in 1993. I brought lots of people into because it gave particularly women and women's employment so that women can maintain independence. We did extraordinary things. I was involved with the launch of one of the new Land Rovers in Northern Ireland. I advertised Irish beef.
0: You didn't have the the harp up in the bonnet of the car, did you?
1: No, but I was lying over the bonnet with the harp on one hand. It was hilarious. You were not. I was. So I know. OK, I'm in my 50s now. It was hard to imagine this point. But, you know, I had, I was was cut a fair old shape now in in my 20s. I had such a ball. It was an enormous adventure. And of course, I, I had in my teenage years, in my early 20s, worked with the peace people. So I had already known the value of representing Ireland. And I mean, I wasn't trying to be a patriot. I mean, if Jane Fonda was out saving the whales, I didn't see why we couldn't do something for the harp.
0: Then, here, how did you make the decisions about here?
1: Well, the big thing was is that my mum was not comfortable about me living in Northern Ireland at all, even though my dad was from there because I was a target for a lot of intimidation of various different types at different times. And, you know, at some one point it became kind of fairly clear that actually somebody who was driving a middle line was almost in a more dangerous situation than somebody who was supporting one of the extreme sides.
0: What kind of intimidation were you suffering from?
1: Yeah, well, I was getting intimidation at work. I was working in a place which was fairly dominant from the establishment side of things, and there were a number of people among the staff that were not comfortable about me working there.
0: How did that... Manifest itself?
1: Um, well, I would love to tell you, but it could be quite difficult for me to talk about it. Um,
0: well, was it nasty phone calls yes. or was it cold shoulders or not sitting with you in the canteen? Or?
1: Um, no, I had life threats. And I had some very scary situations where I had a, my sister was threatened with, um, with kidnapping and mutilation. Now, it, it was a hoax that happened. But for 18 hours, we did not know that this was a hoax.
0: For 18 hours, you didn't know where she was. Yeah. God. Um, that's a far cry from messing around in a land
1: robber. Oh, yeah. I know, but that's, that was Northern Ireland. It was an extraordinary place. An extraordinary place. And I, I met some phenomenally mighty people. Obviously, when the threats came as close as my family, that was extraordinarily scary. And my family were extremely pissed off with me. they were ex- no they weren't in the least bit sympathetic to me they said Janet you will not put us into any danger and you know it was it was actually very very difficult because my family were aware of that time when my sister was threatened with um, with kidnapping these people who had been on to me, they knew their, they'd done their homework. They knew what my movements were. They knew what my family's movements were. Now my and they knew
0: was, she was away for 18 hours somewhere anyway. was yeah, that it?
1: Yeah, and the extraordinary thing is that uh, she was living in Denmark at the time. I had just visited her because she'd been in the hospital. We had Interpol on it. It was a difficult and very scary time. But, you know, it was also something that affirmed for me the usefulness of doing what I was doing because... When you have two communities that are very entrenched, to be able to expand their horizons and and expand their margins was a lot of what my role was about. And certainly that was entirely what the Harp Orchestra was about. That broke the camel's back was actually my neighbours being targeted on the 29th of August in 1999. And that was when, actually, despite all of the stuff I had dealt with directly myself, that was when my knees started wobbling in a big way. Essentially, I woke up at 2 30 in the morning to a bright orange light. And I was quite used to the white lights of the helicopters and the search beams of the helicopters out the back. But this bright orange light should have belonged to the other side of the house. There was also this crackling noise, just bright, bright, crisp, crisp, crackling noise. Anyway, you know, through the haze of my sleep, I went to the back window and discovered that my tree was on fire. And then at that moment, I saw a great big hoosh where my neighbour's central heating oil tank burst into flames. And a big ball of fire came down the slope into the house and the house was engulfed in flame. So I ran down my stairs and out the front door and ran to the front door, bang, 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 to get these guys out. And I rang the fire brigade. They were very quick to come up. Now, actually, at the time, I was in the process of going through a divorce, which was very, very painful. And my ex-husband was a fireman. So he was up there and it was an extraordinary time. But anyway, that was a very difficult day. Our, in fact, our divorce was in court that very day. I know 29th of August, you just, just not, you wouldn't believe all of these things, just kept zing, zing, zing. Anyway, it was a de- very painful day. But I went into shock and I had one of these post traumatic shock things and i ended up having a lot of uh terrors you know night terrors and yeah
0: <laughs> why why were the neighbors targeted i
1: i, I can't tell you i'm mm. sorry i'm terribly sorry but right. um you know because they're still living in but it Northern wasn't related
0: America. to to the no. the hassle you were getting
1: mm, no absolutely not no it was somebody else's feud and that was the one where i felt i couldn't control it you know the extraordinary thing is that i mean i had been through a lot of weird things myself but because they were directed directly at me I felt I had control on them I mean you no, know, no, that, that really you know <laughs> doesn't make sense when you think about it logically for instance when that business happened with my sister with the threatened kidnapping there I couldn't control that yeah that was that was hard it was at that point I decided I'm, I couldn't stay and I reckoned that my my time was well served, and that I needed to go home and that's what I did. So we were looking at a place out in Balinokan, and
0: when you say "we," you had myself you, and the we, husband, yeah, your new husband,
1: yes. I met him on New Year's, on, on the Millennium Eve. On the internet. Yes. On a dating website. One of my girlfriends came down and with a bottle of wine and said, Right, Janet, come on, we're going to have a bit of crack here, you know. And, uh, you know, you're on the market again. I said, look, listen, go easy. So we'd had a bit of fun looking up the Lonely Hearts column. In, in the newspapers, everything up there was either RC in brackets or P in brackets. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, of course. Of course. Anyway, I I came across one chap's profile on the internet and he said he was a banker with a soul and I wrote a very, very sarcastic note back and I said, no such thing, no such thing, don't give me that lather. And then I, I completely forgot about it. Four months later, I get a response Malcolm apologising that he hadn't looked into his email in that length of time but he absolutely was full of soul, I mean you know he was a banker with soul and he wanted to prove it to me and I was really quite offhand because at this point I had gotten over my <laughs> and I was quite comfortable not to waste time writing to people because it's a very uh, seductive thing to be writing to people and you know I had a lot of time on my hands at this time. At I think night. you're going
0: to see you feel very exposed and humiliated but you are actually enjoying the process. Oh
1: yeah of course, why not? And I mean, once you're over the age of 30, you're not going to go down to the local bar and I'd like to kind of learn a bit about somebody before I'd be bothered wasting time on them. So, right. <laughs> so he had gone through and he ticked a few boxes because at this point I discovered he was an organist and ex-Salisbury Cathedral and, and he loved the harp. And so we had kind of... Did he say that unbidden? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. My husband has a son. He's in Oxford studying history and politics, and Johnny is the apple of our eye. I didn't have children myself. I wasn't blessed with children. I tried hard. Had nine miscarriages, but I, you know, you end up just having to love everybody else's and then send them home with their washing. So that's what I do here in the heart centre. <laughs> Good second part. All my students. I mean, I think in a way they get all my maternal interest and loving and caring. Okay, just take that second memory. Now, first ending. I have very special relationships with some of my students. Okay, just. One, two. Leave They put the smile on my face. And just walk over. One, two, three. People would say to me, Janet, you must be a workaholic. And I don't feel like that at all. I mean, it's my choice. And I'm very, very lucky to do something I love. Like, yeah. on your own. Okay, nice and steady. Again.
0: Janet Harbison, Harpist Leader. and More. You've been listening to The Curious Here. I'm Ronan Kelly.
1: One, two. Again, and. Good girl. And now finish it off, and.